All right, so I want you to think, as we're wrapping up the letter uh, to the Corinthians, this first century correspondence is so different than what we experience now. Uh, honestly, being on the other side of the world, like pretty, pretty far away, I could, at the end of our days, FaceTime Kristen and the kids and talk to them, just first person. They were there. They're driving around on their way to different practices or school or whatever. They're just holding the phone and all the kids are passing it around. I could see their faces on the other side of the world. It was amazing. I'm so grateful for the technology to be able to do that. It was such a gift. Um, but that's not what it was like in the first century. I went to one of the most remote places that I have ever been to in my entire life. We were hypothesizing with the Nepali friends there uh, how many Americans might have been on this road that we had been on. And our guess was less, fewer than 100 in the history of the world. Fewer than 100 Americans have ever been on that road. Literally, the only reason you would go on that road is to visit this one village of 150 people. And it was, it was the most remote place I have ever been. And I had 4G on my phone, you guys. I, it was, I could take a picture and send it to Kristen without any difficulty at all. It was absolutely insane. I had a Nepali SIM card, but still unbelievable that that was the case. That was not the case in the first century. You have a church that, uh, that's a, you know, it's a bustling church, maybe 150 people in the church in Corinth. It's not as big as Antioch or Jerusalem, probably uh, upwards of 1,000 or more people in those churches Corinth was kind of like an outpost church plant. It was smaller. They didn't have a lot of connection to the other churches. And so Paul writing to this church is bringing them into a bigger story. It's actually helping this church see that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And it was incredibly important for that to be the case. Because if you were with us as we went through this letter to the Corinthians, you find a ton of work being done to shape a different story in these people. They were struggling. They were making bad decisions. They were living in sexual immorality or, or, or pursuing idolatry. They were misusing spiritual gifts or whatever the, the situation was. There were a lot of pastoral needs. And so Paul spends much of the letter dealing with those pastoral needs. But what can often happen is if we get consumed by pastoral needs, in other words, the things that are happening just here in our local church, and we we never get drawn out to be a part of a bigger story. I don't know if you've ever been a part of something like that, but it can start to grow really uh, inward thinking and insular, and you can lose a sense of, of mission and purpose and, and the, the story that God's bringing us into. It just it melts away so quickly if we're not careful. And so Paul closes out these letters by just taking their eyes off of themselves and just launching them onto the bigger story that these people are in so that they can know there's something happening beyond the walls of this church. And so I want to encourage you with that. That's the, the goal of these final um, passages. And we're going to start in a, in a verse that my dad actually taught on two weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the last verse of chapter 15. And we're going to go all the way through to the end, talk about four major things that Paul does to bring us into a bigger story. And we'll start here in 1558. It says this. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul's just spent chapter 15 casting vision for or teaching the theology of the resurrection. His thought is if we can fix our eyes on the resurrection, if that produces a hope in us, it will change the way that we live. It's important that you know this, that, that the perspective of the New Testament is that as a follower of Jesus, your life should be totally different than the life of somebody that doesn't know Jesus. The fact that we have the resurrection waiting for us, that that idea that life does not end at your death, but there is an eternity waiting for us, and the picture of us being made like Jesus in the resurrection, that should set your life on a completely different trajectory than it would be without that. And that's one of those challenges that Paul's been wrestling with is this church has just aligned too much with the world. They've gone to this place of, of just kind of feeling like the world is what we want and we can just kind of bring Jesus and merge Jesus with the world that we live in. And Paul's just with this church trying to, trying to separate those things out a little bit and say, actually, there's something distinct and different about following Jesus 
than about being a part of the world. And so in light of the resurrection, he says, therefore, be immovable, be steadfast. He gives these words, these pictures that are so incredibly vivid. Uh, my dad, when he was teaching on this, taught about a, like a rock in the ocean, just the waves crashing against it and it not moving. Uh, I watched Chasing Mavericks on the plane on the way out to Nepal. Anybody seen Chasing Mavericks? All right, big wave surfing. And, you know, this idea of Mavericks, it's this beach up in Northern California that's for years, I mean, since the creation of the world has had these 60-foot waves rolling in every once in a while and just crushing the shoreline. And there are these rocks that are there and have been there as long as people have been going there. And they're immovable. They're steadfast. It's part of the, the landscape. They just, they've taken a beating and they're there. And Paul's saying, look, in light of the fact that you have the resurrection, be like that. Nothing can shake you in this life. Nothing. If you have the resurrection in your line of sight, then you can take whatever this world can throw at you because you know that there's a different story waiting for us. You can be steadfast and immovable because of the resurrection. You can lock your feet in to that reality that Jesus has a future for you. Whatever the world has to throw at you, you can take it. And so he, he gives that, that call, be steadfast, be immovable. Then he says these words, that's always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He wants this little church that could be somewhat disconnected from the bigger story, to realize that they have a contribution to make to the bigger story of the gospel advancing. See, one of the things that can happen is we can just start to feel like our little corner of the earth, our little church, our little thing, it just, it, it's not that significant. Especially if you start to compare to other churches and their size and their scope. I, I remember going to a conference at Saddleback a couple years ago. Uh, it was a, a church planting conference and, and Rick Warren stood up and said, we did it this year. We officially have a church plant in every country on earth, even North Korea. He said that in front of, in front of everybody. And it's just like, you could, if you're not careful, just look at that and be like, okay, so we just, we're just doing nothing here. And Paul's writing to this Corinthian church that could feel a ton of shame for getting caught up in sex scandals and idolatry and, and following leaders instead of Jesus. They could be buried by that and just be like, what do, we, what do we have to bring to the table? And Paul says, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know your labor, it's not empty. What you do for the Lord is not empty. That's in vain. It, it has purpose, it has substance, and it has significance. Now, here's a, a thing. This passage has been a part of our church. Uh, if you were with us when I came back from sabbatical, this was uh, a verse that the Lord put on our hearts coming back from sabbatical. But it's been a part of our, uh, of our life and of this church from the very beginning. We tried early on to define success as a church. What would a successful church plant look like? Is it a ton of people? Is it a ton of church plants? Is it a ton of money given out? What's, what are the things that would define a successful church? And what we concluded is that actually those things, those things don't determine a successful church. A successful church is determined by humility and obedience. Is Jesus asking us to do it? And are we obeying him? If we're obeying him, that in and of itself is success. Whatever the fruit is, that's up to Jesus. Have you ever read books or, or seen some of the historical characters of uh, of our faith since Jesus, like the early church and on through the, the history of the church, you read so many people who lived their life faithfully and obediently and did not see an ounce of fruit until generations after their life was over. Have you ever read those stories? You look at that and just think, man, is that, is that life a failure? And the answer to that is no. Under no circumstances is that a failure. The fact that they walked in obedience... That is the success, and Jesus gets to produce the fruit. So Paul's writing to this church, and he's saying, look, I want you to know whatever work you put in as a follower of Jesus, it will not be empty. It's not in vain. It might feel insignificant. So I went and visited our friends uh, in Laos. We sent them out two years ago, and they, they've been there, and it's, it is hard work. 
This family, uh, you know, they've got two kids. They're young kids, three and two. They're uh, beautiful, sweet kids, but it's, you know, you're, you're in a totally foreign country. You're in a totally wild place that, that you don't know the cultures, you don't know the, the language. They're still learning the language. They're doing great with their language training, but, but man, it's so, just so different. I walked through the market, and you would look in this bucket of things swimming around, and they legitimately did not look like fish. Like, I seriously, it didn't look like an actual fish. And I said, what is that? And he said, it's a fish. I'm like, all right, I've never seen that. That's gross. Uh, I mean, wild things about this place. And they packed up their family and moved there. They're teaching people English. They're learning the language of Lao. They are ministering to people, but it's slow. It's a bit of a grind. It takes time and energy, and, 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 and you don't see the fruit firsthand right away. And we are so used to, in our, in our context, fast results, quick, big, growing, multiplying. If it's not happening right away, it must not be the work of the Lord. We kind of get this attitude, and here I, I go, and I'm talking with our friends and just saying, tell me the vision. Like, What do you see? And everything that he shared with me, was like five and 10 and 15 years down the line. This, this heart was burning for this nation to see people who know Jesus equipped and empowered to go to rural areas where they don't even speak loud there. They speak other uh, rural tongues, native tongues. They, 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 they live in a totally different culture and way than even the cities in Laos. And their vision was to equip indigenous people to go into those places to plant churches and make disciples but it's going to be long work and diligent work and hard work and paul's writing and he's saying look whatever work you put in in the name of jesus it is not empty work it's not empty work my mentor when i was growing up a guy named chuck gerwig had a, a best friend named mike that uh he had prayed for Mike. He told us. I was in a small group with Chuck, and he would tell us. He would give us updates on Mike on a regular basis. Just, this is my friend. I'm praying for him. He doesn't know Jesus. I love him. They go on motorcycle rides together. They play, you know, cards together, whatever. The great friendship, but just a brick wall when it came to the gospel. And Chuck, you know, moved on from Thousand Oaks, moved up to Santa Cruz, eventually planted a church up there, and years down the road, um, Mike walks into the back of one of their gatherings on a Sunday night. They meet on Sunday nights. On a Sunday night, Mike walks into the back, and Chuck's so excited to see him, runs up and gives him a big hug. And Mike just says to Chuck, he says, hey, man, I found Jesus. I got baptized. And I just thought of that. Chuck was the most diligent prayer warrior for his best friend. 18 years he prayed for Mike. 18 years. Our tendency is to feel like we want to give up on things when they don't produce right away. And here Paul's writing to this little church and he's saying, look, there's no work that you could put in in the name of Jesus that, that would qualify as empty. None. In the name of Jesus, when you work, it is not in vain. So abound in the work of the Lord. I want, I'm saying this because I want you to hear this. You cannot waste your time investing in the things of the kingdom. It's impossible. If you're pursuing the things of Jesus, there is not an ounce of wasted effort. Now, you can be lazy, and you can be undiligent, and you can do lots of time wasting. As a human being, we waste tons of time. But for your work in the Lord, whatever you put in, that will reap kingdom fruit, even if you don't see it even if it's not a quantity that maybe we're used to, a return on investment that would feel satisfying to us. That's not the way that Jesus measures. He's not looking for you to make a hundred disciples or you're worthless to him. He's not looking for you to make a thousand disciples or you're uninteresting to him or to plant six churches in 16 years or you're uninteresting to him. That's not the math that Jesus works off of. If he puts a call on your life and you obey, that's, is not empty. That's what he wants to see. Your calling might not be to go to Laos. It might not be to go and learn a foreign language, to do the long, diligent, laborious work in another country. It might be here to do the long, diligent, laborious work of praying for and sowing the seeds of the gospel into your family and the people in the immediate neighborhood around where you live. 
Sometimes we can hear these stories from abroad and we're like, man, what am I even doing with my life? Well, look, if Jesus didn't call you to that and you were to pack up your stuff and move to that place in disobedience, that would be the, the most foolish thing you could do. The, the goal is not to do what somebody else is doing or to fulfill their calling. The goal is to hear from the Lord, what is it that you have for me to do? What is it that you have for me to bring to the table for the kingdom of God? And whatever work you do in the name of the Lord, it will abound. It will abound. Abound in the work of the Lord. So here's the, the last thing I'll say on this before we move on to the next section. Sometimes we can get caught up in not knowing what our calling is. We feel like this big ambiguous thing. And I just want to reduce the mystery quite a bit. There's a, a universal call on all of us to make disciples. 100%. Every single follower of Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations, including this one, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the first thing, and I love every book that you'll read on missiology will say this. Look, if you're not making disciples at home, you're not going to make disciples in another country. If you're not devoting yourself to the things of Jesus at home, it's not going to get any better going into a foreign context. So begin, whatever, even if that's never your calling, today, now, this is your place. You're here. Your calling is here. We absolutely need today for disciples to be made here. And then if the Lord takes you to another place, beautiful. We'll send you, we'll commission you, we'll pray for you. Can't wait for that day to get rid of you in the name of Jesus. It's going to be awesome. But when that day comes, that day will be a different day. Today, there's a mandate on you. A gospel mandate to be a disciple-making follower of Jesus. But the first thing that you can do to abound in the work of the Lord is say yes to him today. Say yes to him for the things he's asking you to do today. And I have a personal belief, and I think it's backed up in the scriptures, that when we say yes to him today, he gives us more tomorrow. That when we're faithful with what he entrusts to us, more will be given. That's starting to sound pretty biblical. And so when we're faithful with the stewardship that he gives us today, he's going to increase the call on us for tomorrow. And when we do that, I want, to, I want you to hear this. Why Paul's saying this to this church, he's trying to make them understand their significance. You might not feel significant in the kingdom of God. Paul sees it differently. Jesus sees it differently. He wants you to hear, you cannot do empty work in the name of the Lord. Whatever effort you put in, it is beautiful in the kingdom of God. So you need to be putting work in. We need to see the body of Christ abounding in the work of the Lord. All right, the next section. Paul shifts gears into generosity and how that makes us a part of a bigger story. He says this, 16, 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Super practical, but Paul's writing to this church and, and asking them to be a part of a, a fundraising campaign for some believers in Jerusalem that are struggling because of a famine that's hit. The Corinthian church has never met the Jerusalem church. As far as we can tell, those churches have never gone on a marriage retreat together. They've never uh, rallied together. I want, I want you to think, Corinth and Jerusalem, imagine, I don't know, like a six, seven, eight day each way on horse, longer on foot, kind of travel between these two cities. It's a long way, and they didn't do that. Unless you were in the business of some kind of travel or some kind of business, you really didn't leave your home in the first century. So to think about the idea that this other church, these other people that follow Jesus, they need help, and I need you guys to contribute and be a part of their story, immediately what that's doing is bringing them into something bigger. It's not just about you, Corinth. I realize that you're struggling, that there's a lot of stuff that needs to be dealt with here, but we need to be a part of something out there. And one of the ways that we do that is through generosity. By giving financially, you immediately tie yourself to another story. 
So one of the, the people that I went to, there's a young man named Bikash uh, that lives in just outside Kathmandu. Technically, it's in Kathmandu in Nepal. Uh, he grew up in a leper colony. Uh, leprosy is still a very real thing. I met an 18-year-old kid that was affected by leprosy. He had lost uh, his legs and his fingers. Uh, this is still very real. If they get to it quick enough, they can stop the advancement of the, the disease, and they don't lose their limbs or their extremities. But uh, some of these people live in places so rural that they can't get to the proper care in time. So, I mean, arms, noses, ears, fingers, gone. Legs, gone. And so Bikash grew up in this because both of his parents were lepers. They had met, uh, they had each walked a long distance to get to the hospital. And in the, the process of walking, they had lost limbs and they met in the hospital uh, as lepers. They, they fell in love. They met Jesus and they got married. An incredible story. And Bikash and his sister are a part of that. Neither of them are affected by leprosy, but their parents are. So Bikash grows up in this place. And uh, we as a church have contributed to him and his ministry, blessing this leper colony. Uh, his mom feeds, I met a 96-year-old woman that can barely remember her own name, let alone Bikash's name. He said it about 60 times. Uh, he lived next door to her for 20-plus years in the leper colony. And this was, she was like his nana, and she couldn't remember him. But his mom goes down there and feeds her every single day, makes her a plate of rice, some dal, uh, just feeds this woman, blesses her in that way. They minister to these people. We went through, he knew every single one of them by name. He knew whether they were a believer or not a believer. It's about 50-50. You say Jameseed to the believers, it means Jesus is Lord or praise Jesus. You say Namaste to the unbelievers because they get really offended if you say Jameseed to them. Uh, and he would walk through and he knew precisely who were believers and who were not. So Bikash, a couple years ago, uh, he was doing this tutoring center. He's an he's a academic. He wants to be a teacher. He's working on his master's in accounting. Uh, we've been a part of even helping him get his education uh, but one of his desires is to help the kids that grow up in the leper colony uh, get a better, better education than what the government schools provide. So he started a tutoring center. It's his passion, it's his dream to tutor these kids. Uh, the government schools are, are severely under-resourced and do not help these kids get out of the, the poverty cycle or ever get out of this place uh, with a job or with anything. It just it leaves them extremely limited. So Bikash said, I want to I tutor these kids. So he starts a tutoring center in this tin shed. It has about 35 kids. Four years ago when I went there, tin shed, 40 kids, incredibly hot just because that's, it's hot there and tin sheds get hot real fast. And, uh, but it was beautiful. Kids were excited. They were learning. They would go to school from 10 to 3 and then they would walk to the tutoring center and they would get tutored from 4 to 7. This was their life five days a week. It was incredible and beautiful. And Bikash was te teaching them music because he's a, he's a musician. He leads worship at his church. And he would only teach them Christian songs. They didn't know it, but he would teach them Christian songs. He's not allowed to preach the gospel. The government would shut down the tutoring center if they knew that he was preaching the gospel. It's a Hindu country, and you're not allowed to, in any formal way, convert somebody to Christianity. And I asked him about that. I said, so tell me about that. What do you do? And he's like, I do it anyway. 80% of these kids have given their lives to Jesus. So a few years ago, the earthquake happened and the tin shed fell over. Uh, and the government provided for the tin shed and the, the, their house also was damaged beyond repair. So they, the government provided $3,000 for each of the structures that was damaged. It was part of like the global aid that went into Nepal. So, uh, so they got that along with some money that we provided, along with some money that some other organizations provided, and Bikash was able to build, he built a three-story structure. First story now houses 75 kids in the tutoring center. Uh, they teach music and uh, accounting and math and, and reading and everything. They, they tutor these kids for hours a day. Uh, the second floor, his mom, his dad, his sister, and his brother, they live on the second floor, and they built a third floor so that any of us that come out there to help them do stuff, we have a place to stay. He took me through it, and he said, this is Jess and Carly's room. This is Mark and Marcy's room. Uh, he showed me all the, all the places that they've decked out for everybody, but they've tried to create a place where even us, through our partnership, can come and, and be ministered to there. Honestly, you might do ministry, but it's more... <laughs> blessing simply to be there and watch this thing happen but there's a place for us to stay when we come there and they're now seeing incredible fruit come out of this a young gal that went through the tutoring center years ago her name's Somita I met her last time I was out there uh, she was gone this time it's incredibly difficult to leave Nepal if you're in Nepali the government does not like to let any of their citizens go 
Uh, and Somita got a, through this tutoring center, she got a, an internship with a ministry in Canada, and she had to work really hard to get the ability to leave the country, and she was finally able to. She wasn't there this time. I sat with her mom, and she told me stories uh, and showed me a video of Somita at her internship in, in Canada, but she's there. She's working. She's doing incredible things, and this is, guys, to think of somebody from that leper colony even going to Kathmandu proper is a big deal. So to get all the way out and to go to Canada and to have this internship, it was a huge deal. And this is Bikash's heart and passion is to see these kids thrive in life. I share all that with you because our contributions that celebrate generosity are, are, are making that happen. They're a part of the, the financial structure of that. So what happens there? It's a part of our story. So Paul writing this is saying, look, you can be a part of that when you give financially, you bless something else, and now it's a part of your story and you're tied together. Your, your stories are knit. And so when we think about what we give, I don't know if you gave at Celebrate Generosity, but I just want to say, if you gave at Celebrate Generosity, you have invested in the outcomes of somebody else's life. And that's part of us getting our eyes off of ourselves and seeing things through a different lens, being a part of a different story, contributing to a different place. And again, what happens when we tend to lose sight of this is we just kind of, our eyes fall down and we get used to things being the way they are here. It was really important for me to take one of our kids. I, we try and take our kids out of the country if possible. So we saved up and we paid for Tyler to go on this trip with me. He's 12 years old. He's been out of the country once. He saw England and Northern Ireland, but that's different. So to take him to Laos and to Nepal, uh, to have him eat the food that was there, to walk through the markets that were there, to ride on the back of a motorcycle into the remote parts of Nepal, just, just south of the Tibetan border. I mean, those were... Those were things I wanted my 12-year-old to see that this is not normal. The fact that two and a half, three days ago, we were walking around the streets of a, a leper colony or the, the pathways of a leper colony, and this morning on my prayer walk, I was walking past the Rams facility as players were driving in and coaches were driving in in their epic cars to get ready for Monday night football. And just to think of the disparity, that's, that feels normal to us. This feels normal to us, and it was wildly different. We need to know that there is a bigger world out there and we need to have eyes beyond our own or we will find ourselves. That's the, oh, John's not here. I was going to point out somebody in a cast. We atrophy. We atrophy spiritually if we don't keep our eyes on the bigger story of God. And generosity ties us to that. Next section. Paul says this, verses 5 through 11. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. This is really important. Paul is writing and he's tying the, the church in Corinth to a bigger story. Paul's actually giving them an apostolic story. And being a part of an apostolic story is what lifts our eyes beyond the local. It takes us to a different place. Now, if hearing that word apostolic makes you apprehensive, we're not, we're not necessarily naming apostles or trying to give some undue authority to specific people, but we are talking about something essential. The word apostle means sent one. That's it. So when they were identifying the apostles, they were the ones sent by Christ to do the work of the, of the gospel. And that word continued on. I don't know if you know this. We don't use the word apostle very much, but we freely use the word missionary. Well, here's a quick little lesson in linguistics. Missionary comes from the word missio in the Latin. Missio comes from the word apostolos in the Greek. Apostolos, if you translate it directly to English. Anybody guess what it means? It means apostle. So we, we're hesitant with the word apostle, but we're free with the word mission and missionary. 
An apostolic story is a sent story. It's a multiplying story. It's a story outside of ourselves. Apostles were foundation layers. They would go in and do the work of establishing a theological and a cultural framework for a new community of believers. They would lay the groundwork for the church to be built and multiplied for generations to come. It is critical that we are a part of an apostolic story, a story of sending, of commissioning, of seeing the name of Jesus go out from this place. When we lose that, when we become an explicitly pastoral story, and let me explain this. I said that like it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But when we become a part of an explicitly pastoral story, it's when our eyes turn inward and we lose sight of the story When we lose sight of the story, we lose our motivation. Okay, so here's the difference between a pastoral story and an apostolic story. Both are essential. But a pastoral story is what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 1 through 15. It deals with the issues of uh, the body. Here's the reality. Not one of us is perfect. And I know I say that generically sometimes, but think of it this way. Everybody has something just a little bit off or a lot a bit off. We're off. We're off socially, we're off relationally, we're off emotionally, we're off theologically, we're off spiritually, we're off missionally. We're off in different ways. We're a group of people that not one of whom is perfect. We need pastoral ministry. The pastors tend and feed the sheep. They they help the flock be together. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. It's a good thing. Have you ever been a part of a story that was that was pastoral without the apostolic or without the prophetic or without the evangelistic where it's gotten to the place where its explicit purpose is the ministry of the saints, the ministry of the body. And what can happen in that, while it does produce a a health of a type, it misses the, the, the health that we see in Ephesians 4, the maturity that we see in Ephesians 4. So as much as we need pastoral ministry and and for us to grow to health, can each of you identify something that could use some pastoral help in your life right now? Just some counseling, some theological development, some encouragement, some some prayer, some work to be done, some reuniting with other believers. We all have some pastoral work that needs help. Absolutely needs to get done. But we also have to have an apostolic story that keeps our eyes outward because it shapes a different perspective in us. It lets us see that the world is different. See, what what you get with this is Paul writing, and you have a church that they were mired in a sex scandal, right? They had sexual immorality inside of their church, and you can be so consumed with that, but Paul chooses to lift their eyes up and say, you know what? Check this out. I was just within the believers in Macedonia, or I'm about to be with the believers in Macedonia, and after I pass through there, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to spend the winter with you. Have you ever been a part of a a sermon setting like this where whoever the preacher was was just somewhere else? That's a stupid question because you're all in it right now. Uh, But a different time where a pastor maybe came through another church, and then he came and and preached with you, or, or somebody shared the gospel after being with another body of believers. They come with stories. They come with the faith that's happening in another place. They bring a sense of togetherness to the fact that God is moving in other places as he is moving here. And it gives us a sense of partnership that's bigger than ourselves. And so Paul starts sharing these stories and he talks about Timothy and he talks about Ephesus and guys, things are happening. And he says this about Ephesus. He says, a wide door of opportunity has opened to me there. And there are adversaries, many adversaries. Now, I want you to think about this. Little church, Corinth, 100, 150 people, kind of in their own world, dealing with their own issues. And Paul writes to them and he says, let me tell you about Ephesus. A huge opportunity just opened up and there are crazy adversaries there as well. It's a difficult thing, but it's a big thing. What does that do to the church? What it should do and what I believe it does do is it calls us to be partners in that and to pray. So they start going to work and saying, okay, Paul's got an opportunity in Ephesus. Let's pray for that. Let's let's see what God wants to do with that open door. Let's run through that with him in prayer. Some churches might get selfish and say, you know what, forget Ephesus, Paul. We want you here. Clearly we need you. Would you bail on the open door and get to us? And that could be our temptation, but the reality is, 
being a part of a bigger story helps us see the opportunities elsewhere and it gives us encouragement even if the opportunities are not happening here in the same way. Look, every church is going to run into walls. I love what's happening here. We've been on a 10-year run. I'm sure other people would describe some walls that we've hit. I can't remember a single one. It feels like it's been a sprint for 10 years. I love it. But we will hit walls where our effectiveness diminishes for a season. It's just bound to happen. It's part of the, the ebb and flow and the life cycle of the body of Christ. We will hit walls where our effectiveness diminishes for a season. And we need apostolic stories to keep us tied to the stories where God is moving and working because that lifts our eyes beyond what we're dealing with here and lets us see the bigger story. We need it. So I got a chance to spend some time with Babu. And Babu is doing incredible work. This is a man that uh, I've shared his story with you guys before. He, uh, his home is also a ministry in that they've adopted over the course of the last 25 years, I spoke at their silver anniversary celebration to 25 years of ministry, uh, they've adopted over 60 kids. Uh, there are now 38 that are living in the home. Others have graduated out and gone on to, uh, to Bible school, to college, to working on their master's. To, uh, there were two of them that were teaching. One was teaching in India, and the other was going to school, I guess, in the Netherlands. Uh, just incredible stories that were happening there. In addition to that, Babu is the pastor of a church. I got to preach at the church there. There were probably about 200 people involved. Again, it is illegal in Nepal to convert somebody to faith. Yet people are coming to faith in Jesus. Uh, they're being baptized. They won't use the word baptism because that's a, a trigger word for the Hindus. So they call them water celebrations. Anybody feel okay with them cheating on that? Uh, so they go and they have water celebrations and they, they baptize new believers. They're just doing incredible work. In addition to that, they started a Bible school and students from all over Nepal are coming in and are, are participating in the Bible school, getting ready to go back and do pastoral ministry out in the outer reaches. And in addition to that, Babu functions as an apostolic leader to 16 different churches where he goes and ministers into these churches. He gives these guys salaries. He gives them opportunity to learn from him. He will teach them a sequence of messages that they'll take and teach in their churches. He goes out to each of the, the villages once a month and they come to him once a month. Incredible, incredible work. Being connected to a guy like Babu, it lifts our eyes and gives us creativity to think of a different way of doing life and ministry. And you think about that. Doesn't it enlarge your capacity just hearing his story? His downtime is raising 60 orphans and commissioning them into a better life. That's his downtime. His life is filled with whatever he can do for the Lord. He says yes to it. I go into that home and Sabitri will not stop and sit down with us. She just keeps making us food. We're like, we just ate and you're making us more food. Their hospitality is off the charts. Their love is off the charts. Their generosity is off the charts. It just changes the landscape. When we start thinking, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really busy. I'm not sure I can say yes to that thing. And then you look at Babu's life and you just change the whole dynamic of what it means to be busy. The whole dynamic of what it means to say yes. We need people like this in our lives because we get so caught up in the way that our world should look and it just starts to, it's, it narrows so fast. Has that happened to you ever where life just feels so big and so many opportunities and then like a day and a half later, you're like, okay, I got this one thing to do. This is my life and our, our world just closes in. And Paul is being so diligent with the Corinthians to just, just lift their eyes back up and say, no, just no. This is a bigger story. Galatia, Jerusalem, Macedonia, Ephesus, Timothy. He's going to go on and talk about Apollos and Achaeus and Fortunatus and Stephanus. He's lifting their story to be a part of something bigger than themselves. We need this. Okay, the next section. Paul says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. I can't tell if Paul's throwing Apollos under the bus. It kind of feels like it, but whatever. He's trying to get him to come to Corinth, and Apollos said, uh, not yet, but he'll get there. Paul promises he'll get there soon when he has opportunity. Uh, he says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. 
Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acacius because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Okay, a few things are happening in this passage. First of all, the Apollos thing. I want him to come through. He's got a ministry to bring. It's not working out right now. We'll get him there as soon as possible. Hold on to that. Then he says, I want you to be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. He's telling them to, to kind of gird their loins up for the work that's ahead, but to let all that's done be done in love. Now he says this, and he brings them in again to a, a story of faith to help them see a bigger picture. He says, you all know Stephanus. Uh, sorry, was it Stephanus? Let's go back there. No. Yeah, household of Stephanus. They were the first converts in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. That remote place that I went to that had 4G. Uh, so we, we rode motorcycles out of Kathmandu for about three and a half hours. Uh, Becky drove one, Satya drove the other. I was on the back of one, Tyler was on the back of the other. It was an incredible thing, scary as all get out, these big trucks and you just pass on the inside. It was so weird. Um, a lot of the times you just close your eyes and just hold on, but it was good. So we go and then we just start climbing. We just climb on these bikes, the deepest mud, the craziest roads I've ever been in. And we get to this village at the, it wasn't even at the top of the mountain. And we asked them, how high is this mountain? And they said, oh, these aren't mountains. These are hills. Those are mountains. And they pointed at the Himalayas. Um, But I mean, seriously, we were probably like, if you've been on the top of Mammoth Mountain, that's what it looked like. It looked like you were on the top of Mammoth looking down on Bishop. And that's what it was like looking from this place down. It was, it was insane. So we get up there and we meet this group of people, this church. They'd had the gospel for 12 years. Now, just to give you a little bit of a perspective. So we're standing up there and if you've ever seen pictures, there's like terraced farming that happens. They do like, they cut up the hills because everything's hills there and it's all steep. So they terrace the, the farmland so that they can do more rice or corn or whatever. And I said, how long do you think those terraces have been there? And they basically said, we've never known a time when they're not there. There's hundreds of years, generations upon generations that that's been here. So this village has been there for hundreds of years. And they've known the name of Jesus for 12. And in those 12 years, half of the village has given their lives to Jesus. In the face of persecution... This church, they, they gave their lives to Jesus and they started meeting in their first building and their building could be pushed over with two hands. So just so you know, when I say building, we're just talking about a shed, basically. And they start gathering and the Buddhists that were there, this is just south of Tibet, just inside the border of Tibet. Uh, the Buddhists did not want Christians in their village, so they start threatening to <laughs> bulldoze the building. Uh, they were going to get them out of there and they were, they were going to, by force, get these believers to stop meeting in this place. And the believers started gearing up for a fight, uh, and they called Satya and said, the Buddhists are trying to fight us. We're about ready to fight them back. And he said, okay, don't fight. That's, there's a better way. So uh, I just love, by the way, the, uh, the idea of a Buddhist-Christian rivalry, sort of like the, the Jets and the what else from West Side Story. I just picture them just kind of, yeah, the sharks, yeah. Uh, anyways, that's, that didn't go down. It was, uh, that was nice that they rescued them from that. Uh, so Satya said, okay, there's a better way. And he, he kind of worked it out and brought some, brought some peace and even through the, the peace, some of the Buddhists gave their life to Jesus. All of them are coming out of Buddhist background, 100% of these, these people in these rural areas. They, they live their entire life, and all they know is Buddhism. And they gave their lives to Jesus in the face of persecution, and their faith is incredible. 12 years. Think of, how, think of the collective knowledge of Jesus that exists in this room. And that entire village had known the, the name of Jesus for 12 years, and they were devoted. They had a sister that had gotten sick just a couple of days before, and they took shifts praying over her. There was never a moment when somebody wasn't praying for this sister that desperately needed medical attention. They eventually, three days later, were able to get her to a hospital but their, their commitment was to just nonstop prayer over this sister that had fallen ill. They loved Jesus. We sat with them and we worshiped and we ate with them and we, we just we celebrated the joy of the Lord together for 12 years. They are the first converts in that village in the history of the world. 
and they are devoted to the service of the king. Guys, if that story doesn't like swell you to want more of Jesus and to see him in more places with more people doing more work, giving more hope, I don't know what will. We get so caught up in our small story and we lose sight of a big story that God has us being a part of. His faith is happening in a big way. What was really exciting about this is we stood in that village and we, again, felt like a, a mountain. We were on a hill. But Satya said, that village over there has a church. That village over there has a church. We were looking at, at, at mountain like ridge lines, and each one had a village on the top of it. And he was pointing around, and he's saying, our work is to, to come out here, and we host regional conferences where all the pastors come together, and we train them theologically. None of them are theologically trained, so we train them so they can go back to their villages with, a, with an authentic gospel, and they can preach into those and they have 80 different pastors from villages scattered all over these hills that are coming to them and learning the gospel of Jesus. That's what my dad's leaving on, on Wednesday to go preach the next unit. He's teaching through the whole book of John and teaching them how to exposit the book of John two weeks straight. He's, he's teaching these pastors of these remote villages how to understand the scriptures and to interpret them and know for their context how to preach the word of God. These village, that was one village story, and there are 80 of them scattered around these hills. These stories of faith that connect us to a bigger story. Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians don't get caught up in their own stuff. We have stuff. We're going to have to deal with it. We are broken people, and it's going to come down at different times. We're going to have to we're going to have to stop and take care of what's happening in this place. The pastoral ministry can't stop. It needs to happen. We need community. We need life together. We need to learn how to pray and learn how to worship and learn how to give and learn how to know the scriptures. We need these things. But it can't happen without eyes to a bigger story. It can't happen without knowing that God is at work in a place like this in just about every corner of this world. People are giving their lives to Jesus against fierce opposition, being excluded from their families. I heard multiple stories from, uh, sorry, from our friends in Laos of people that when they gave their lives to Jesus, their family instantly, instantly told them never to come home. And they had to find a place to live and find a way to get work or finish their schooling. Some of these were school-age kids, 18, 19 years old, gave their lives to Jesus and told they had no place to come home to. As our story is not the story of this world. It doesn't lessen our story. We need it. Maybe you grew up in a household of faith or maybe you found Jesus in spite of your household. But if, if you're struggling with understanding why God has you in this, just know that there is a work being done in this world and you are a part of it. I got to tell the church in Nepal stories about you and they were encouraged by you. They were blessed by you. I got to tell them what a church we have and the faith that God is building in this place and the generosity that God's building in this place and the mission and the church planting and the hunger for more and the prayer. I got to tell some of those stories. We both recognize that neither of our churches are perfect. Theirs isn't, ours isn't. They're beating off cults with a stick. Anybody that has money that comes in, any cult that offers to, to train pastors for a week, the guys are incredibly tempted and it's so difficult to, to, to battle that. We're dealing with more issues like in Corinth, issues with the world where people are thinking, all right, well, sex is fine. You can do sex with whoever you want and it's just not a big deal. And Paul's sitting here saying, actually, no, it's a huge deal. And that's maybe more our issue Whereas that's, that's been a little bit less in the older generation there. It's an increasingly difficult thing in the younger generation in Nepal. And they are having to deal with that. Some of the issues are shifting as it gets younger. But the bottom line is our churches aren't perfect, but the stories are hugely encouraging. And for us as a church, I want us to be connected. I want us to feel that sense of partnership with our brothers and sisters around the world and if we lose that, I do fear, I do fear that if we lose our, our, our apostolic connection to the work of God that's happening around the world, that some of us are, are just going to get bored. 
And maybe even today you're struggling with a sense of boredom in your faith. It's probably one of the, the biggest enemies. I mean, Jeremy, we've talked about this before. It's one of the, this the apathy of, of this next generation. It's one of the biggest things that we're facing. More passionate about things that matter less than ever. We need to understand what God is calling us into. It is a, it is a radical story. My hope is that in sharing this and seeing what Paul's inviting us into, he's saying, look, just don't lose sight of the story that you're in. Don't. Don't get complacent with the, the day-to-day, the moment-by-moment stuff that we have to deal with. Let your eyes be lifted to see a bigger story. Paul finishes with this. He says, I, Paul, this is verse 21. Sorry, I, I skipped over the churches of Asia and the greeting there. That's a big, big thing. But I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. That sounds really harsh, but I don't believe Paul's being harsh with this. He's essentially saying this. Look, if, if you're doing this not out of a love for the Lord, but out of a duty, you're going to find yourself. I mean, he uses the word accursed. Think about what he's saying. Let him be accursed. He's essentially saying, uh, you're going to find the greatest difficulty in that situation. Trying to do the work of God without a love for the Lord is worthless. It's just not the way of the kingdom of God. The first thing is to find your love for the Lord and let the work of the Lord flow out of that. Sometimes, I'll be honest, I've been dutiful or diligent to just do the work of the Lord, even if I'm, I'm struggling in my love for the Lord. There, you may have experienced something where that kind of sparks something, and that's, that's fine. But if you found yourself falling into this rut of just, yeah, I don't really love the Lord, but I'm here, I would encourage you to find that, that passage in John 15. Look to the place of abiding in Christ, and that's where you bear much fruit. When you abide in Christ, when you have a love for the Lord, when there's relationship and connection, that's when you see the fruit starting to flow out of your life. That's when Jesus starts to work his greatest work in and through you is when you're abiding with him. So I just wanted to encourage you with that. Uh, I hope that in seeing this, you're seeing a, a part of a story that, uh, that we are connected to. And if nothing else, I hope it just lifts your eyes to see uh, God at work and be encouraged by that and be shaped and challenged by that. I'll say one more thing, but I'm going to close in prayer and have Kyle and the team start coming up. Uh, Jesus, thank you for bringing us together, for giving us the opportunity to, uh, to hear stories of faith from around the world. I pray that you would stir us to uh, a, a greater love for you and the people that don't yet know you. Lord, stir us to um, be hungry for more disciples as you are hungry for more disciples. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.